0: Well, thank you for joining me today for episode number six of the Healthy Skeptic MD podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Hockman. So today I'm going to shoot the breeze with one of those people who can talk about just about any topic in healthcare thoughtfully and intelligently, and that is Dr. John Schumann. John's an internist. He hosts an NPR segment in Oklahoma, and he also happens to be the president of the University of Oklahoma Tulsa campus, and we'll hear a little bit about how a doctor ended up in that role Shortly. So today I'm going to talk with John about how the University of Oklahoma has handled the COVID pandemic, what to do when you as a patient disagree with your doctor, and just about uh, everything else that is wrong with US uh, healthcare. If you do like what you hear today, please search for and subscribe to the Healthy Skeptic MD podcast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Please also search and subscribe for my YouTube channel, also Healthy Skeptic MD, and follow me on Instagram. And if you do like what you hear, please do consider leaving a review. It really helps get the word out about the Healthy Skeptic MD. Okay, before we jump into our interview with John, uh, let me go over the health news of the week. So first, a lot has been said already about President Trump's uh, COVID diagnosis, and I certainly don't mean to rehash it all today. But I do think there's an important couple lessons that uh, align with Healthy Skeptic MD principles. So many have said that President Trump has received VIP care. In fact, his personal physician said, this is the president and I don't want to hold anything back. Now, I think that's a sentiments that i and many others understand i certainly don't envy the role that the president's physician is in right now but i would push back a little bit and i'm not actually sure that the president has gotten better care than the standard in some ways it may even be worse so so far for his treatment the president has received zinc melatonin pepcid, the Regeneron antibody cocktail, remdesivir, and the steroid medication dexamethasone. Now, each of these medications in isolation has its own set of side effects, but when you put them all together, there can be all sorts of interactions. The other thing that's worth noting is that this Regeneron antibody cocktail has actually only been used in a few hundred people in experimental settings and trials. I'm not sure I would want to use a medication like that in the president of the United States that's only been used in a few hundred people. And then with respect to the steroid dexamethasone, Uh, Many of us think of these as benign medications, but as I'm gonna talk about in a second, they actually can have some downsides. And this medication has been shown to be effective in people with really severe advanced COVID disease that's not responded to the common measures and treatments. But it's actually been, uh, there's been some concerns about harm in people with earlier, moderate uh, disease. So overall, I'm not sure that the president did actually get uh, the best VIP care as, as some might say. I think another important lesson from President Trump's illness is about testing. So many have argued that, uh, you know, testing is this panacea that's going to get us out of the pandemic, and I actually think it's exactly because uh, President Trump and many others at that uh, famous Rose Garden events where he seems to have been infected because they had received tests that were negative. They had a false sense of security and were maybe closer with others and not using masks uh, as others might have. So, you know, I really do believe in testing. I think there's a strategic important role for those with symptoms. But I think until a vaccine gets uh, available, it's really going to be the simple measures, masks, masks, masks. And as Dr. David Kat said uh, the simple things we can do to protect high risk, uh, frail people with uh, chronic complications that's going to get us uh, that's going to protect the most people. So I also want to mention one other non-COVID study today also related to steroids. It's an analysis of the Annals of Internal Medicine and it talks about the use of steroids for those simple things like colds and back pain and rashes, those little annoyances. In medicine we call steroids the feel-good medications because they often make us feel better quickly. But we often forget that they do have, even in the short-term use, side effects, such as driving up your blood sugar levels and triggering mental health complications. And this new analysis in the Annals of Internal Medicine highlights a couple additional uh, side effects. So it found that there was, from a short course of steroids within the next month, a doubling in the risk of gastrointestinal bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure. And incidentally, there was another article in one of the JAMA journals, not about this specific study, but an editorial that said that even short-term use of steroids carries the potential for troubling and sometimes dire adverse effects. Consumers of healthcare, the public may be allured by the prospect of a quick fix that they disregard any ramifications for their overall well-being. So I think the lesson here is that steroids can indeed make us feel better, there's important uses for them, but we do not want to reach for them for every ache and pain and sore throat that we experience. And this is probably a lesson I should heed to uh, in my practice. So with that, let's uh, jump to our interview with Dr. Schumann. Okay, well, I'd like now to welcome to our show, Dr. John Schumann. So John has a really interesting background. Uh, He is an internist and he also happens to be the president of the University of Oklahoma Tulsa campus. Uh, John is a graduate of Yale University. He completed his residency training at the same place I did, the Cambridge Health Alliance. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk about the Cambridge Health Alliance because it's one of those places that gives me hope that it is uh, possible to practice patient-centric uh, medicine uh, in our crazy healthcare system. It's a, it's a really great place. Uh, John has done work in ju- on just about everything imaginable in healthcare, uh, focusing on human rights, uh, medical ethics and profit motives in healthcare. Well, John, the first question I have to ask you, are your students back on campus now with COVID?
1: Um, the answer is mixed. We have a few students who are on campus, about 25% of our classes are happening in person. Uh, we have a universal masking requirement on, on all of our campuses. So everyone's wearing a mask anytime they're not, as I am, closed door in my office where I have you know space. And then all of the in-person classes have to be under 40 people in the classroom. Anything above 40 is uh, is moved online, and then they have to have adequate physical distancing in those classes. Basically, our health professional classes are happening in person, where there are rotations. You can imagine third and fourth year medical students, or PA students, or nursing students who are doing rotations in hospital or in clinics. They're meeting and they're they're going in person. Um, Some of our allied health, that's physical and occupational therapy where they have laboratories or simulations, those are happening in person, but the the vast majority of our classes are happening online.
0: Well, it certainly is a simpler situation. Here at the University of Southern California, we do have a lot of residential students and it's the dorms where we really worry about those uh, outbreaks happening, but it's great that you've been able to at least keep uh, a lot of your university activities uh, open and it probably helps having a a physician as a president in this particular uh, circumstance. So, John, you and I have had a number of conversations over the years, and I think we share a common concern about the US healthcare system. What are the barriers that, that interfere with good care and patients getting what they need in our current healthcare system?
1: As I see it, the biggest problem is that we continue um, our single biggest driver or point of entry to the healthcare system is health insurance, and that is usually through employer sponsored um, health insurance. And while that's great if you're employed, and it's great if you have that as a benefit, um, it really creates a barrier for all of those that are outside of the uh, you know employment insurance system. And of course, there's many, many people that are employed that don't get insurance as a benefit, typically lower wage workers. And there are many uh, people for whom they have it as an option but can't afford it. The other obstacles are the incredibly Byzantine structures that we've established um, in our insurance-centered system, which are, you know, co-insurance, essentially co-pays and deductibles that act as barriers to people seeking care. And uh, it, they wind up discouraging people from doing so. And so we wind up with a very, uh, much like our economy, a very unequal, unequal access to the systems. And so we wind up, you know, treating things once they become much more rampant or advanced, you know, particularly things you think of like colon cancer or breast cancer, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, so it's always struck me that there's a real paradox. On one hand, we have all these barriers that get in the way of people getting these simple things that they really need. But one of the themes of the Healthy Skeptic MD podcast is that we also have a problem of overuse of medical services. And I guess I'll just ask you, do you, do you think we overuse healthcare uh, services?
1: Well, I think the the empiric evidence points to yes, because we as a nation spend, you know, people often quote the number three and a half trillion dollars. Uh, per year, you know, and it's uh, almost 20% of our gross domestic product is spent on healthcare goods and services. So by that measure and aggregate, we definitely overspend and arguably overuse. But then many commentators would suggest that our overspending is that we're, there's inflation or that there's, you know, a huge amount of waste. And so people like the, you know, people, like, um, institutions like the National Academies of Medicine have said that up to a third of of that three and a half trillion dollar spend is is wasteful or redundant, and so we're not getting actual value for that. So, the question of are people getting too many services? I think the answer is in some cases yes, definitely, but in, in probably more cases we're you know under uh, utilizing services, and so it's that huge imbalance where some are overusing, and probably more are underusing or underutilizing or not having a way to to. Um, uh, really access the system or get necessary care.
0: So one thing, John, that you've written about, one you've written about many things, but the thing that you've written about uh, that's really caught my attention is um, patients who leave the hospital or leave the medical system against medical advice, essentially when patients don't follow exactly what we, the doctor, tell them. So can you just begin by explaining what does it mean and why might a patient
1: leave a hospital against medical advice? Essentially, the idea is when a patient is hospitalized, they're there on a voluntary basis, and it is amazing what people put up with in terms of our uh, medical regimen, as far as testing and treatment, and living in a hospital, spending time in a hospital, whether it's you know several days or one night um, for surgical operations, or you know presumably they're doing that of their own free will and they've given consent. But in our in our world in internal medicine. Um, people often come in because they have an exacerbation of a chronic condition or an acute condition that leads them to really not be able to care for themselves. And ultimately that's, or, you know, to face uh, serious morbidity or death. And so they come to the hospital often through an emergency department nowadays, but you know, still sometimes through a direct admission. And so we do our best to diagnose and treat their illness. Now, all kinds of pressure comes to bear to get patients out of the hospital we we definitely don't want to keep them in there any longer than they need be and in fact that health insurance system that i talked to has specific recommendations or guidelines that they're going to threaten the hospital with non-payment if if a patient stays longer than a certain diagnosis merits that's known as the drg or diagnosis related group system but in any event a patient has every right to say the heck with this i'm out of here i hate the food (laughs) You keep sticking me with needles. I, uh, you know, I want to go outside and smoke. Uh, I want to do a lot of things that, uh, you know, have control over my destiny. And right now, I've I've surrendered a lot of control, and I'm very frustrated. So I'm going to leave. And the whole convention of AMA was, I think, dreamt up probably by lawyers. Um, the idea being that we want a patient to actually sign a physical piece of paper, a document that says they attest and understand that they're signing out against the medical advice of the healthcare team of the doctor that's treating them and understanding that the responsibility may fall on them and what's too bad about that is that we we do it in a punitive way I think very often not always but we sometimes there's a small sense of relief because frequently patients that sign out against medical advice are agitated because of the fact that they Um, maybe withdrawing from a substance or they may want to go outside and smoke or they may want to eat the kind of food that they choose to eat rather than what we serve them in the hospital Um, and so they're sometimes willing to sign the form and say kind of here's my signature out of the the heck with you I'm out of here and sometimes of course they see that as a total charade and they for (laughs) kind of for what it is and they just bolt right out of the hospital and that's really what against medical advice is the way I came to this literature was actually when I was working at the University of Chicago Uh, a medical student came to me and said um you know i haven't she didn't phrase it this way but ultimately it was a little bit of moral distress she saw the resident she was working with sort of browbeat a patient into staying even though the patient was frightened by the idea of a cardiac catheterization and the patient said i don't want to do this procedure and i want to leave and the resident that the med student was working with said well here's the thing if you leave and you don't submit to this test you're gonna become financially responsible for the cost of this hospitalization. And you know what? The patient wound up staying, having the procedure. Fortunately, everything went okay. The patient did fine and the patient wound up going home. And I don't even remember if the patient was found to have a cardiac lesion or if it was remedied, but that medical student came to me as a small group advisor and said, this really upset me. And in fact, I had never heard that, but it was a, a well, a pervasive medical urban legend that if you sign out against the hospital, sign out against medical advice, you become financially responsible for the cost of hospitalization. It wasn't true then, it's not true now, and yet it is still a pervasive medical urban legend.
0: Well, that story actually triggers a memory I have from my training when I had a patient who had was admitted to the hospital with very out of control blood pressure, and the cardiologist came in and had some recommendations and wanted to increase the, the blood pressure medications and the blood pressure still wasn't at adequate control. And the patient was getting ancier and ancier, and he had some family obligations he wanted to handle. And basically, the cardiologist came in and said, you cannot leave. We need to get your blood pressure under control. And he told called me after the cardiologist left, I really have to get out of here. And I said, well, all right, well, let me see you in clinic, and we'll do what we can do. And the patient followed up, and actually, his blood pressure was much better when he was out of the hospital, maybe because he was not getting poked with needles and woken up by nurses all the time. Uh, and we were able to very nicely titrate his blood pressure medications up as as an outpatient. And uh, you know, it was the first time that it occurred to me that maybe the doctor's advice isn't always the right advice, even if they are a um, you know a specialist in whatever uh, area uh, topic that would be. But we doctors do get. Uh, For lack of a better term, bent out of shape when when patients don't follow exactly uh, what we say, and uh, you know I'm guilty of this as as guilty of this as anybody else. Why is it that we we doctors get so uh, bothered when patients don't do exactly as we say?
1: Well, as you mentioned, it's the the ego thing is a huge part of it. So we are uh, ostensibly most of us are good apples. We're trying to do the best we can. We're trying to do what seems medically right, and you know, patients come, come to us and ask for our help. And um, we do the best that we can. So when they disagree with us, and they may not disagree with us on the merits, but they simply may have a need that has to be fulfilled. And um, in thinking about this, you know, I talked a little bit about tobacco abuse, but it could be um, untreated or undertreated chemical dependency. So alcohol abuse or, or certain drug abuse, those are major reasons why people sign up against medical advice. But there are also social determinants. And I know you've, you talk to other uh, guests on the program about social determinants, it could be a rent payment, or very importantly, it could be a job. Someone might lose their employment because they, they don't have paid time off or the ability to um, essentially get treated for their illness. Their, their, the threat of losing their job is so strong and so severe as to cause economic hardship that they that they want to leave the hospital. So we, the, So the reason of why they want to leave may have nothing to do with the actual medical knowledge or medical care we're providing, but it, it does affect our ego. We think, oh, why, are, you know, why aren't they listening to my advice? That's one thing, and I'd say the second big reason is the fear of liability. So if, if a patient, you know, the, the, the catastrophe scenario is they either walk out or they sign out against medical advice and walk out of the hospital and then they drop dead from the heart attack or the stroke or, or what, what have you, whatever, I mean, we're treating them for or even what we're not treating them for, and so the the perceived potential guilt of that, just the emotional guilt, but of course the the negligence guilt. I think that the liability fear is is overblown. Uh, but again, I mean, hospital lawyers have written those those documents that we do ask people to sign. Um, you know, whether they have any legal teeth or not, you know, is for, for lawyers and the judicial system to decide.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Some of our listeners may have read the book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. And it highlights the tension between two different approaches where there's one set of doctors who uh, want to treat this child who has epilepsy according to the textbook. And if the family doesn't follow exactly the protocol, um, they want nothing to do with the patient. And then there's a more lenient approach uh, where the doctor is letting the family um you know, not necessarily follow all the, the protocols and and be a little uh, lenient with taking the medication. And I remember having a lot of discussions with about that book as a medical student and, you know, people were really torn. Um, but I actually on, on that one really sided with the approach of, of working with the family where they were and, um, you know, healthcare is as much an art as it is a science and we're here to serve patients and help them achieve uh, whatever their goals are. So you know, I can obviously see both sides of the coin on that one, but but certainly my philosophy is is what one much more about patient autonomy, uh, which is why the, the work that you've done to highlight that patients may actually have good reason for for leaving or not following uh, the orders of the doctor exactly um, as they're written. Uh, that's always uh, resonated with me. I just ask as a final question on this topic, is there ever an appropriate time when a a patient uh, should uh, not follow their doctor's advice? Is that ever appropriate to do?
1: I mean, I think the simple answer to that is yes. Um, I think too often, we present things, we present options in a skewed manner. That is, we will often lead with the procedure or the treatment regimen that we think we ideally think is efficacious that's liable to help the patient or treat the condition Um, but instead of presenting them as as perhaps equal or even unequal options um, but what's left unsaid a high percentage of the time is you could choose to do none of these things and you could leave the hospital but i should also point out that one thing medical ethics training taught me is that autonomy is all about the right to make what we might consider bad decisions. But if someone is of sound mind and, you know, uh, might make a medical decision that we don't agree with, but they, per- they have that right. Well,
0: I want to shift topics a little bit to the, uh, the topic of the season, which is COVID. And let me just start by asking, uh, how are rates of COVID in uh, Oklahoma right now?
1: Rates are high. Our test positivity rate is around it's been around hovering around 10%. I can't give you a, an exact quote at the moment. We get sort of a weekly update from our panel of local health experts. It's for some reason, always on Wednesdays now. Um, but we, we get probably twice or three time a week uh, briefings from our, uh, the executive director of our health department. Um, but we are about third highest in rate right now. So we, we have it's it's in the country, yeah, but that's on a that's on a percentage basis. You know, we're actually a pretty small state in terms of population. There's like four million people that live in Oklahoma.
0: I think I saw in the national news there was actually I think it was Oklahoma State uh, the the students there was a small spike uh, on campus. There am I remembering that correctly?
1: You are yeah. There there have been spikes at both Oklahoma State and my own university, University of Oklahoma. Um, particularly uh in the uh, greek system fraternities and sororities they came back on campus and didn't have strict protocols often the reason cited is that they are not owned by the university though those houses and so they're sort of independent of the university and so i know at the i don't i can't speak to osu but in the ou case like our dean of student affairs had to really um, work with the leadership of of the you know pan hellenic Hellenic society to really get them to try to uh, adhere. I'm, and I don't mean to criticize them. I think they had some national standards, but I think might've had trouble um, implementing them on a local level. And I, I do think that they've done a better job. And I think with the universal mask mandates on campus, at least um, we've managed to, to control things. I, I, I Not totally control them, but control them a lot better.
0: Yeah, well certainly here at USC, that's also where the outbreaks have been within the, the Greek system. Um, Well, I I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I thought it's worth asking anyway, what do do you think this pandemic has in store for us over the next few
1: months? Everything I read and everything I follow leads me to believe that it's gonna continue um, in this very slow, painful way, where we're just gonna continue to have small embers that flare up in different states, if you want to call them second waves, if you want to call them third waves, we don't, you know, as has been stated on your program and everywhere else, the lack of a national policy, of a coordinated effort, of state policy in my state, um, we have way too much of a patchwork that has led to individual uh, localities and institutions, businesses, or in our case, universities implementing their own rules and regulations and it's it's just been frankly a nightmare i mean it's just been chaos and and so we I, I just shy of of a you know major shift in national direction i don't see this getting any better and yes i am hopeful of a vaccine but a- any prediction that we're going to have a vaccine in calendar year 2020 i think is hopelessly naive and even if we get one in say first quarter or second quarter 2021 you know until we get it Um, scaled up and distributed and figure out who's going to get it. So I, I just think this school year in many ways is a lost cause. Now that said, I mean, some people are very uh, capable at the remote learning, both the instructional side and the student side. But I think there is a tremendous challenge for, you know, especially like young children who, you know, staring, it makes, makes, uh, you know, my heart hurt to think of, you know, five-year-olds or, or below staring at screens all day.
0: From your vantage point as a college president, I'm sure you face a lot of pressure to reopen schools before there is a vaccine. I agree with your assessment that it's very unlikely that there could be something that's safe, effective, and widely distributed in the United States before the middle part of 2021. Um, Before we get to that state, I mean, is there a way that we could start reopening some campuses uh, in some sort of normal fashion through masks and social distancing or is that just a pipe dream?
1: No, I think we can absolutely do it. I just think we have to have we have to have better systems in place to figure out you know, and I actually I learned a ton from your your interview with Dr. David Katz who uh just we need to risk stratify better and we know You know, we've known pretty much all along, but we have failed to implement sound solutions for protecting the most vulnerable, be they the aged and or those with the comorbidities. You know, the the, um, infection and and morbidity and and mortality rate ultimately is, is, you know, so much higher for those at the age and um, comorbidity extreme, whereas you have this vast swath of society for whom, uh, you know... COVID nineteen or, you know, novel coronavirus or however you want to phrase it, the, the illness is is manageable. But to answer your question, yes, I think we can safely do it, but we've got to have better we've got to have better testing, tracing regimens and we've got to have more clarity around how uh, How we do it
0: well, it was uh, you mentioned the David Katz interview, and he criticized the United States for for not doing exactly what you 're saying, sheltering the frail elderly populations, those with chronic comorbidities and right after that interview with him, I actually had a patient uh, with a very advanced heart disease. he was actually on the wait list for a heart transplant. And uh, he was uh, working as a security guard and he was actually the person who checks the temperatures of the people coming in to make sure that they don't have a fever. I couldn't think of a worse job for someone like that to have. And then the other hand, we have these young, healthy people who are out of work, desperate for work. And it just strikes me that we could figure out a way to be smarter, more creative, and get the people who are uh, safer and less likely to have a complication be the ones on the front lines. I mean, you even see it in the grocery stores. It's the geriatric uh, patients that are bagging the groceries, and it just doesn't make any uh, any sense. Well, John, I so appreciate your joining uh, today. Uh, you know, it was really a, a breath of fresh air to hear your perspective on uh, how to make our healthcare system Uh, better. Uh, If you like what you heard today, we're the Healthy Skeptic MD. Subscribe on uh, YouTube. You can search for Healthy Skeptic MD wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining and we'll be back again next week. Thanks.